The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So from the point of view of many people out there, you're kind of wasting your time being here this morning. Did you know that? Um, you might be a little out of your mind. I saw yet another study, and I've seen several of these in the last couple of weeks. Churches are closing more and more. Uh, some never recovered from the COVID thing, and it's just like an epidemic. Churches are closing, and in some ways, many ways, Christianity seems to actually be shrinking in this country. You could ask, well, why? And that's a complicated discussion with many layers. I just, I want to propose one ingredient as part of the mix there. That's the idea of how our modern world understands the concept of faith. How does, how does the world outside, our cultural moment, understand the concept of faith? I think it's probably true that our environment, they still see faith as having some value. So it's not totally and entirely demeaned but it's almost like a, its own variety now. So what is faith? And, and how would our modern world answer that? So there's a, a guy named Christopher Walken who's written a great book uh, called Biblical Critical Theory. And uh, in one of his chapters, he describes how the modern world looks at faith, and he uses three words. I, I'll share these ideas with you, see what you think. One, he says, the modern world views faith as ignorant. And, and here's what it means. To the attitude of the modern world, faith is not something that rests on hard evidence. That, that's not what it is. It's more of a sense or a feeling or a preference, kind of like close your eyes and, and just believe. You think that's true? Have you, heard, have you heard things like that? There's a sense where if, if you're putting your faith in something, it's kind of, it's not really based on hard fact. It's ignorant. Second, he says, the modern world sees faith as superstitious. And I think these two things are related. Because if your faith isn't based on evidence, then it's kind of something that's just true for you. Uh, as long as it helps you out, and you kind of get to invent it as you see fit. And in that way, it's superstitious. Ooh, I do that, I don't do, I don't do that. Why? Well... It's the way I feel about it, right? So it's ignorant, it's superstitious, he says. Finally, the modern world sees faith, sees faith as passive. So they see faith as more of like an internal conviction, like there's something spiritual existing. But it doesn't really demand anything. And it, it, it can't really confront you very well. And we see why, because it's not really based on hard evidence, and you're kind of inventing it as you feel. So of course, it's going to kind of meet with your own preferences already. And so in that sense, it's passive. There's no uh, objective standard or, or measurable demand to you from this version of faith. Now, I, don't, I don't know if you agree with Watkin or not, but, but can you see how there's this maybe in our cultural moment? Yeah, it's just belief, but it's, it's not grounded on anything specifically. Anyway, 
ignorant, superstitious, passive. If that's what faith is, well, can't you see that one implication of that, why church is kind of useless? Uh, I can have that kind of faith on a morning walk at the beach. I can have that kind of faith sleeping in after a long week. And yet, as we're going to see from our text today, here's why I bring this up, the modern world's version of faith has nothing to do with the kind of faith described by the Bible. Uh, Totally different things. We're studying through the Gospel of Mark. Just remember, Mark was an associate of the Apostle Peter. Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus' life. Um, And so Mark is the account of Peter's eyewitness testimony about Jesus. And so it's safe to say Mark was written within 30 years of Jesus' life. That's a, that's a really important fact to understand. Why? It means it can't be myth or legend. It's a, it's a historical claim. There's a real man who really did these things in a real place. And so we see already uh, Christianity is an informed faith. So remember, there's, there's three questions at the heart of this gospel. They're deeply related to one another. Number one, who is Jesus? Who is he really? Who is he? And I hope you're asking that question. Who is he? Is a myth? Well, you can't really do that. Um, is he just a good teacher? Is he, is he more? Who is he? It's really important because to have an informed faith, who he is, that, that should have a big influence on what it means to respond to him. Second, what did he come to do? Second question at the heart of this gospel, why did he come? It's just a huge idea for, for knowing, well, how do I respond to him? So who is Jesus? Why did he, what did he come to do? And then, of course, the third question, well, how do I respond to him given those two things? And so already we're, we're, being, we're being pushed or we're being taught about a Christian view of faith. Number one, like using Watkins' terms again, instead of faith being an ignorant faith, not based on something like evidence. No, the, the Christian faith, we're, we want an informed faith. So for instance, just in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells you in verse one who Jesus is. He's the Christ, the Son of God. It's an incredible claim. And then we've been watching it week after week. He shows you who Jesus is. He's trying to prove something to you so that your faith isn't just a vague thing out there. It's based on these historical claims about Jesus. So it's an informed faith. And so, of course, rather than being a superstitious faith, it's a dependent faith. Dependent faith. So as we see Jesus, we hear his words. Christian faith then is then banking our lives on the clear evidence reality of who he is and what he said. We're depending on that. So I'm depending on him instead of inventing something myself, myself based on how I feel about it. Do you see the difference? Instead of superstitious, it's dependent. I'm not making stuff up. I'm depending on something that's been revealed to me. Third, instead of being a passive faith, Christianity is meant to be an active faith. We're going to see that in this passage. Jesus calls people 
to not just believe that he exists, but to trust themselves to him, and then who he is and what he says and what he's doing, that's gonna transform you at the very core of your being. It's gonna change your sense of identity, it's gonna change your value set, what you love the most, what you live for, and it's gonna change your practical deeds in your everyday life. It's an active faith. And one echo of that active faith, that's why we're here this morning, isn't it? That's why we're here. So with that in mind, the idea of faith in our minds, we're going to turn to this passage, Mark chapter 3. You might think, Matt, you're you're breaking rules, because look, I mean, you're not allowed to do this, right? Do you see how in your Bibles, and, and please do turn there, do you see how in your Bibles I'm going over some of the title sections here? Like, you can't start in verse 20, right? And then go through parts of two sections. But I, who am I to doubt the translators? But I'll show you why this is one, this is one major storyline here, okay? Verses 20 to 35. And here's what we're going to see, right? Mark has been showing us Jesus over over and over again. He told us who Jesus is, and now he's showing us. He's showing us. He's showing us. And then we're starting to see different groups respond to him. Okay, so just in our passage today, here's our groups. We're going to have the crowd. We'll think about them a little bit. We're going to have Jesus' family. Very interesting. Think about that a little bit. We're going to have the religious leaders, their response to Jesus. And then there's this fourth group at the end, four groups of people responding to Jesus. But three of them get it wrong. They get the response wrong. And in this passage, Jesus begins to respond to their responses. Does that make sense? So they have a a misunderstanding of who he is, and so they, they respond poorly, or they don't like who he is, and they respond poorly, and he responds to their responses. And so in this passage, then, is kind of a, what is it? It's a test for ourselves. As we walk through these various responses to Jesus, we want to kind of gather uh, lessons from those responses, and we want to ask ourselves, am I responding to Jesus like that? How am I responding to Jesus? And in the end, the end's the sweet spot. We see the response Jesus loves and what that means for who we are, okay? So let's dive in. Here we go. We're going to start with a crowd. You saw in Mark 3, verse 20, he went home, the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. I don't know if you've ever experienced a crowd throbbing about you like that to where you couldn't even have time or even the space to get away for a second and eat lunch. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing to imagine. And I was just pondering as we've been studying through this book, it's like the crowd is its own person in the Gospel of Mark. The crowd seems to be hovering in nearly every story. Just a few examples. Back in chapter 1, verse 45, Jesus can't even enter certain towns because of how crazy the crowd is about him. He can't even go in. Or chapter 3, verse 9, remember he had to hire a boat so that he could speak from the lake? so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. 
Ever since he had touched and healed that leper, life changed. And now if you can imagine thousands of people wanting to touch you, for some of you, that's your worst nightmare. (laughs) That's Jesus' life in public. So he has to speak from this boat just to get breathing space. Or 524, the crowd is thronging all about him here in this passage. He can't even eat lunch. What are we supposed to do with this idea of the crowd? That's where we're going to start. And and here's how I'd summarize it. As a generality, the crowd wants something from Jesus very desperately, but they're not committed to him. They want something from Jesus very desperately, but they're not committed to him. And let's just think right away, two ways Jesus responds to the crowd. We'll see this um, as we work through this gospel in the coming weeks. But just very quickly, here's Jesus' first response to the crowd. And this really challenges me. Mark 6, 34, look what he says. Um, The text says, Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. So this crowd, they they want something from Jesus, they're not really committed to him. If it's me or you, how do you feel, feel about people like that? How does Jesus feel about people like that? Compassion. He hurts for them. He, he's, he, sees, he sees their need and he feels it. And did you see the core of their need? They're like sheep without a shepherd. And, you know, the Bible's always calling a sheep, and that's like a backhanded compliment, right? What do you know about sheep? They're stupid. Uh, they're not able to care for themselves. They're, they're not good at being self-dependent. They make really bad choices. And so here, we love you. <laughs> and the Bible, the Bible says you're a sheep. And your only hope is what? The shepherd. And, and, you know, for the Bible, that theme, right? The shepherd king, the one who's going to take responsibility for us and provide for us and bring us to himself and protect us, and we're going to hear his voice. We're going to come to him. So he knows what they really need. What do they need most of all? And when we know what they want, they want some food. I want that too. They want healing desperately. I'm not blaming them. I want that too. What do they need? They need him. He has compassion on the crowd. And because he has compassion on the crowd, listen to Mark 8.34. Mark 8.34. Calling the crowd with him, to him, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Do you hear that? The crowd, they all came to listen. But what's Jesus saying to them? It's not enough just to be in the crowd. If anyone would come after me, so many of them haven't yet, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That's what he says. What does that mean? That's, that's a totally new allegiance. If you're going to become a Christian, who's king in your life now? Not you. Do you see how that changes the nature of faith? It's dependent. It's not you. It's him. He's the king. And in a way, you take up your cross. And what do crosses do? It, this is symbolism, but what do crosses do? They kill you. And is, is, is Jesus calling you only so that you'll die? And No. 
In order to live, you've got to die to your sin, to yourself, to your rebellion, your autonomy. Do you see? He's calling people from the crowd. So what's the crowd's response to Jesus? They want something from him, but they're not committed to him. And do you see what he does? He feels compassion on them, and he calls them to follow him. You might start in the crowd. You better not stay in the crowd. And here's where it gets ominous, Mark 15, 15. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, releases for them Barabbas, Having scourged Jesus, he delivers him over to be crucified. See, the crowd will be interested in Jesus for a, for a while, but when he doesn't deliver on what they want to use him for, what do they do with him? We're done with you. So, so here you've just got to ask this question. Are you in the crowd or are you committed? Are you you wanting something from Jesus more than you want Jesus himself? Sometimes people go to church for community, which is great. I want want us to have a a warm and loving community. But if if you come for community only and you use Jesus for community, community is gonna get real sour really quick. And when somebody, you know, it's the little stuff that's the big stuff. When somebody offends you or hurts you or doesn't thank you or says something mean to you, you know what you'll do with your community if you're not there for Jesus? You'll bail. But if you go to church, not for community itself, but for Christ himself, do you see how that changes your whole view on community now? When, when, there's, when there's difficulty, it's a chance for forgiveness, It's a chance for grace. It's a chance for growth because Jesus is the reason for it. He's the point. Anyway, you see this first group in this passage. It's the crowd. They're intrigued by Jesus. They want to gain something from Jesus without committing to Jesus. And over time, they deny Jesus when he doesn't give them what they demand. So what should our response be? Don't stay in the crowd. Genuine faith doesn't stay in the crowd. It commits. It follows. Now we get to Jesus' family. And this is really fascinating to me. You just don't expect this. Look at verse 21, Mark 3, 21. Jesus' family heard it. Heard what? They heard the crowd is so massive he can't even eat. When they heard it, he went out. They went out to do what? Do you see it? They went out to seize him. For they were saying, what was this family saying about him? You're crazy. Did you know this? His own family, his mom, his brothers, his best friends. You're crazy. What's going on? Well, let's empathize with them a little bit. It's hard to imagine what life would be like for them to have massive crowds thronging around Jesus. I'm sure it overturned their lives in ways we can't even really ponder. Not only that, it's just started to occur that the religious leaders hate Jesus and want to kill him. And they have enormous clout in their culture. So you could be ostracized from your culture. You can lose your job. The danger level on being close to Jesus is rising. So I can can empathize with how they feel. But still, here's his family, right? They, They come to Jesus and they conclude he's over the top. He's lost his mind, and of course, you know, who still has their right mind? That's what I love about this so much. 
What's, what's the family thinking? Jesus, you've lost your mind, subtext. We haven't, right? Jesus, we're going we're gonna to seize you and tie you down for your own good, of course. Just trying to watch out for you, right? Who knows better in this, in this calculus here? We do. Very interesting. Two things I want, I want us to see here. Number one, this gospel is true. If you were inventing a story about Jesus Christ, you would not include this part. This does not good, look good on the future leaders of Christianity. It, it doesn't look good at the time to be like, oh, his own family didn't believe in him. Mark puts it in here, number one, because it's true. It's just another evidence. The whole thing is, is true. This is not invented. This is real. Number two, let's just think of a modern version of this response to Jesus. We like Jesus. He's a good teacher. We, oh, there's some really good advice in the Bible. But frankly, there are parts of it just over the top. And you Christians who take the Bible as the inspired word of God, you're out of your mind. And we know better now, right? Our culture knows better. We have smartphones. We have social media, right? And now we found utopian peace due to the brilliance of our, well, no, but right, that attitude, Christianity, you've been tried, you failed, you're bigoted, you're a mess, you're out of your mind. So anybody who believes the Bible and wants to live accordingly, right, we've got to come tamper you down. It's for your own good. But, but here's the question. Who's out of their minds? And, and not, it's not, this is not a game of in, insulting one another. Who's out of their minds? It all comes down to this, right? The first question, who is Jesus? Because what, are the, what, is his, what does family think about him? Hey, it was, it, was, it was really cool when you were teaching some new things. We were down with you as a, as a teacher. That was really great. And even some of your miracles, that was really something. Tamp it down on the whole son of God, follow me with everything message. Because they don't quite yet see really who he is. Listen, if he's just a good teacher, and I'm just going to paraphrase the brilliance of C.S. Lewis here, right? He can't, be a, he, he can't be a good teacher. Why? Because he claimed to be God. So if He's a teacher who claims to be God, and he's not God. Is he still a good teacher? No, Lewis would say he's either evil or insane. So, so throw that out. But if he's actually the son of God, if he really is, and this is really his word that he fulfills, and it's really true, and it really will last forever, who is out of their mind? Those who follow Jesus with all they are or those who play him halfway? It, it all goes back to that question. Who is he? If he's really the eternal son of God who's come, the only rational thing is to devote your life to him. Amen. 
So we've seen the response to the crowd. We've seen the response of his family. They, they kind of want to wrap him up. He's gone too far for their own purposes, okay? We're going to get to Jesus' response to his family down in verse 31. So now we see one of Mark's favorite literary devices. I think we'll notice this over time. It's called sandwiching. So here's the story sandwich, okay? His family comes. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna wrap him up. He's gone out of his mind. And then you forget the family for a second. And what do we start talking about in the passage? The response of the religious leaders. And so Jesus is going to talk with the religious leaders. And then at the end, what's going to come back? The family comes back. So do you see the, the story sandwich? The response of his family and Jesus' response to them. And inside of it, the response of the religious leaders and Jesus' response to them. It's, it's a literary device called sandwiching. And so the stories go together. And, and, you, and you learn more than you would otherwise as you, as you see them together, which is why we started in verse 20. So we see the response of the religious leaders, verse 22, Mark 3, 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. So, so what are they saying? Wrap it, wrap it up in a nutshell. What are they saying about Jesus? The only reason you can do all these great miracles, cast out demons, is why? You're satanic yourself. If it sounds ridiculous to you, it should sound ridiculous to you. Because you've been watching Mark's portrayal of the life of Jesus. Does Jesus seem generally kind or generally evil? Is he touching people and making them lepers? Is he, is he, is he speaking to those who can walk and making them paralyzed? No. Well, every single one of his deeds has been restorative. He's blessing people. He's building them up. He's showing love. It's irrational to think that he's satanic. So what's going on? Well, number one, again, the historicity of this document, the religious leaders are absolutely in a bind. Here's why. They cannot deny his miracles. Never, even internally or extra-biblically, the early sources, never can his enemy say he never did miracles. You know why they can't say that? Because everybody knew he did miracles. It was just, the, that's why the crowds are swamping him. Loads of miracles. So they can't say he's a fraud. He doesn't do any miracles. They're stuck. Look at all these things he's doing. So now their next option, what's the only option next? Well, let's, let's spin why and how he's doing the miracles. We know this is power and authority like we've never seen before. Let's spin it. And we'll say, oh, he does these things by the power of the evil one. And frankly, I don't even think the religious leaders actually believe this. Read this later in John 3. Uh, a Pharisee actually sneaks in to meet with Jesus at night, so nobody will notice he's there. And he actually says, he's a leader of the Pharisees. He says to Jesus, we know you come from God because nobody could do these things otherwise. So what are they doing then? Why are they doing this? They hate, they chafe at the idea of needing Jesus, of surrendering to him and submitting to him. And so they slander him. Well, now at this point in this passage, we get to move from 
different people's responses to Jesus. Now we start to hear Jesus' response to those groups. And it starts with the religious leaders. Look at chapter three, verse 23 to 26. He called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Great principle here. What's gonna happen to a kingdom that's divided? It's gonna fall. There's no unity in the society holding it together. It's gonna fall. It's self-destructing. And then I kind of think Jesus is saying, give Satan a little credit. He may be entirely evil, but he's not completely incompetent. He certainly tries to divide our house, doesn't he? I mean, Satan loves to bring disunity into churches. He will, he will do his best to divide you. He wants to divide your marriage, your family, your church. He loves it. His own efforts aren't divided. So Jesus is saying, listen, I've obviously been undoing Satan's work. It is the height of irrationality on many levels to think he's inspiring me to bring his own losses. This is a joke. It's irrational. It's not true. But then I love what Jesus follows up with. Look at verse 27. Jesus now begins to talk about what he's come to do. And he says something uh, you're just not expecting. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then he can plunder his house. You know, we've got all these, Jesus makes all these illustrations about who he is, right? Sometimes he's, maybe you can help me out if you think of one. He's the bread of life. What else you got? He's the light of the world. He's the good shepherd. Living water, okay? We get, we get all these ideas. He's the vine, Okay. This one you don't expect, he's like, he's the MMA fighter. Th think about this illustration. The strong man is a term for a warrior. And so if you want to go into a warrior's house and roll up all his stuff and take it, well, you better have a plan. Because what's the strong man going to do to you when you go into his house? He's going to roll you up. <laughs> you will now belong to him. But look what Jesus says about himself. No one can go into a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds a strong man. Then he can plunder his house. You know what Jesus is saying? I'm the guy who submits the strong man and steals his stuff. It's fantastic. What does it mean? Well, this connects to the biblical storyline, doesn't it? Let's just remember, first chapter, creation. There's a good and glorious God who makes a good and wonderful creation. The height of his creation, Adam and Eve, human beings, made in his image to love him, to represent him on earth. Wonderful. But so quickly, the fall, chapter three. Who comes to Adam and Eve to tempt them? Satan himself. What's the nature of temptation? I want you, you, should, you all need to know this. His first lie, God's not good. You can't trust him. Second lie, God's word is not true. You can't trust this. If you believe those first two things, you will then replace the real and living God with an idol. 
You will. And that's what Adam and Eve did. And it brought death of every kind, emotional death, relational death, physical death, spiritual death, enmity with God. And that is the problem under all the problems in our earth. And in that way, right, we're all under the rule of Satan. That's where we start. Broken, rebellious in our sin. But there was a promise right there in Genesis 3. One day, one is going to come. And what's he going to do? Well, he's going to get his heel bit. There's going to be a great cost to himself. But what's he going to do to Satan? He's going to crush his head. One day, one is going to come who's going to crush his head and save us at great cost to himself. So you see here what Jesus is saying. Who's the strong man that has people all wrapped up in slavery? It's Satan himself. And who's the stronger man who's going to come and crush Satan and steal his stuff? Jesus. And what's the stuff he's going to steal? It's me and you. It's his people. It's his people. Wow. And so Jesus in his coming, his teaching, his miracles, he's already begun the plundering. But here's the deep, mysterious, wonderful, ironic truth. How does he win the fight ultimately? You had a hint of it in that Genesis 3.15 passage. Your heel's going to get bit. You're going to crush Satan at at great loss, at great cost. Look at Colossians 2. Here's a picture. Colossians 2.13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Where did Jesus win the decisive battle to steal you for himself? It's on the cross. It's dying for you in your place. Incredible. So that's all in Jesus' response to these religious leaders. But now he begins to warn them in the strongest terms. Look at chapter 3, 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Let's just pause there for a moment. This is really good news. All sins will be forgiven, whatever blasphemies they utter. Maybe you have sins on your resume today that are weighing you down, making you feel incredible guilt, regret, loss. You're feeling the weight of how you haven't loved God. He's been so good to you. You're feeling the weight of how you haven't loved your neighbor. You let people down. You're feeling guilt and regret. And it's going to be you at some point, probably, Lord willing. It happens to me. Guess what Jesus says? It can all be forgiven. All of it can be forgiven. Isn't that great news? Bring the guilt, that shame, that re- bring it to the cross, confess it, and be forgiven. It can all be forgiven. Murder, yes. Blasphemies, yes. Adulteries, yes. All of it, it can be forgiven, whatever's on your list. But now there's a warning, verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. Well, here we are, right? Have you, 
Have you maybe encountered this before and you thought, what on earth? What if I did this? There's, there's this thing called blasphemy according to the Holy, against the Holy Spirit. You can't be forgiven. What does that mean? Well, let's define our terms. What's, what's it mean to blaspheme? It's something about expressing defiant hostility towards God in the face of the evidence for God. It's hardcore rebellion against God and who he is, slander on his character, his goodness, what he's done. Now, in a way, haven't we all blasphemed? Isn't that a nature of sin? God, I don't like you. You're not good. I don't trust you. We've all done that in a way. But in their case, the religious leaders, think about it. They have seen firsthand eyewitness Jesus and his deeds and heard his teaching. What do they all already have every every evidence for already. He's the son of God. He's the Christ. And yet, how do they respond? Instead of responding with humble repentance and faith, they respond with slander that calls God and God's work wicked and evil, and garbage, and they lead others to think the same way. And you think of how strongly Jesus speaks to a response like that. You continue in this and you will never be forgiven. And by the way, I don't know what you feel like your worst nightmare is. Let me just tell you what the worst nightmare is. It's to not be forgiven. You can stand before Jesus. And my, my hope, my one hope when I stand before Jesus is, I know you, I paid for it. You're forgiven. That's what I want him to say to me. If I'm not forgiven, I'm hopeless. And so this this warning, if you continue this, you won't be forgiven, is incredibly sober. Your response to Jesus matters. Do you see? I hope everybody sees. Your response to Jesus matters. He is the son of God who came to save you from Satan's tyranny, the penalty and power of your sin. And your response matters. And we learn from the response of these religious leaders, the response of a self-righteous heart. They want to accomplish their standing before God and their goodness before God on their own, and they want to remain in control. You guys, you don't have to go do drug, sex, and rock and roll to rebel against Jesus. You can do it very easily with religion. With religion. Keeping rules. Thinking you're good in and of yourself. Comparing yourself to your friend you know with the worst life and thinking that's the standard. It's not the standard. So responding to Jesus, how we respond is so important. So what's blasphemy of the spirit? Well, we realize as we read what Jesus says, there's someone else speaking of Jesus as Jesus is displayed. In his life, in his teaching, the Holy Spirit is saying to the world, look on the Son and believe. And that's what's happening right now. According to the word of God, the Holy Spirit is saying to all of us, look to Jesus and believe. And for our hearts to go, Jesus is either foolish, wicked garbage. We're blaspheming the message of the Holy Spirit to us. It's pretty serious. 
And if we endure in doing that until death, we won't be forgiven. Well, we've seen the response of the crowd, Jesus' family, the religious leaders. We've seen Jesus' response to the crowd in some way. We've seen Jesus' response to the religious leaders. He tells them what he came to do, and he, he warns them about continuing to reject repentance. But now he goes back to the response to his family. So you see that in verse 31 to 32. His mother and brothers came, standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Does anybody else think this is a little bit funny? You know, Jesus is doing work, and it's like, your mom wants you, you know? <laughs> but Jesus isn't feeling insecure. He's not feeling, um, I guess, to prove himself. He's none of those sinful emotions you and I might have. But he does have, he does have both a, a rebuke and an incredible encouragement here. Remember, they're, they're coming to seize him for his own good because they know better. And, you know, for most of us kids to parents, my, our parents probably do know better, right? If your parents go get you, you should, you should probably listen to them, okay? It's a little different for Jesus. <laughs> he says something amazing. Look at Mark 3, verses 33 to 35. He answers them, who are my mother and my brothers? That had to sting a little bit, right, if you're Jesus' family? Looking about at those who sat around him, who did he look at? Those who sat around him, those who came, those who came close, those who wanted to hear, those who wanted to learn. Those who sat around him, looking around, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Wow. It's both, first of all, it's a, it's a rebuke to his family, isn't it? I mean, no, no parents want to hear that. This is a unique case, obviously. This is the son of God, and he's rebuking his biological family. He's, what is he saying? There's a, there is a bond greater than blood. And he does attack this idolatrous version of family that says family first. In the Christian world, we need to listen to this. Is it a biblical, godly thing to prioritize, if, for my place in life, my marriage and my kids? Should my marriage take priority over most everything? Yeah. Should my kids take priority over most everything? Yeah. Should they ever take priority over Jesus? No. And by the way, I'll ruin them if I put them in a priority over Jesus. They can't fulfill my heart's needs. I'll become codependent. I'll become controlling. I'll become a monster if I find my happiness in my marriage or my family alone. No, it's not enough. Only Jesus can satisfy me. But look at what he's saying. There is an idolatrous version of family that says family first. And think about the ways people who claim to be Christians reign Jesus in to fit our fundamental loyalty to ourselves. God's design for family, the family says Jesus first. Why do I want to do my marriage the way I want to do it, Lord willing? For Jesus' sake. 
Why do I want to be a father in a certain way? For Jesus' sake. But ultimately, is this all for me? Is this for us? Is this for our comfort? Who's it for? It's for him. And again, it goes, it goes back to that first question. Why on earth, right? Because people will tell you, you place following Jesus over your family, you're out of your mind. People will say that to you. When you show loyalty to Jesus in some ways, over loyalty to what some of your family wants, you'll be told you're out of your mind, just like this passage. But think, if Jesus is a good teacher, you're right, you are out of your mind. Put your family first. But who is he? He's the eternal son of God who came to save us from our sin and our death. So what is the only right response to him? Faith, devotion. But here's, here's the beautiful ending. Look at what Jesus says. And I want many of you, most of you, hopefully all of you to hear this as coming for you. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, look what he just called you. What did he call you? You're my family. There's so many scriptures about this. In Hebrews, it says, he's not ashamed to call his brother. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life, how much you've messed it up. If you repent of your sin and you turn to Jesus as your savior, your treasure, your Lord, guess what he says to you? He says to you, you're my brother, I love you. You're my sister, I love you. You're like my mom, I love you. You're, you're my people, I love you. And we just see the glory of what it means to belong to Jesus, that we be unified to him and adopted as children of God, brought into his family to enjoy him forever with one another. And the key, what is it? Whoever does the will of my God, whoever does the will of my, whoever does the will of God, he's my brother and sister and mother. What's the will of God at the core when it comes to your response to Jesus? Faith. Faith. Is it an ignorant faith? No, it's an informed faith. You know who you're talking about, Jesus Christ. Is it a superstitious faith? No, you know what you believe. It's a dependent faith. God's promises in his word. Is it a passive faith? No, it's an active faith because it changes who you are and what you love the most and how you live. And that's what brings us together today, isn't it? There's people out there who say to us in here, you're out of your mind. And very lovingly, gently, kindly, what do we want to say to the world? <laughs> you're out of your mind. Why? It's not because we're better. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because we're holier. It's because of who Jesus is and who we are. Because of him. We've seen how all these crowds respond to Jesus. Most of them are wrong. There's one group who responds with faith. How does Jesus respond to them? You're my family. That's us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious passage. We thank you for the family of God all around the world this morning. 
and in this little room. We pray for our own minds and hearts and how we're responding to you, Lord. Let us not stay in the crowd, but let us commit. Let us not be like your family was in that moment, wanting to control you for our own purposes. Let us not be self-righteous like those religious leaders thinking we save ourselves. Let us be like that group of people sitting around you, not perfect, undeserving, but full of faith in who you are and what you've done. And let us rejoice, Lord, that you have saved us from Satan, from sin and death, and we are your family forever. Thank you for these great truths in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.